One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Coming up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. I'm certainly seeing being near the urban center is a lot more people not understanding the water. I think they're they're new to the water. They haven't received any training uh, on what the water can be like. They might think it's uh, like driving a car. Uh, even driving a car, most people probably don't think they did get trained on how to drive a car. Uh, so boating is just the same. You need to have a, there's a small amount of training you should have before you go out on the water to understand what the ocean is like. It's a completely different setting than being on shore. It's not, it can never be a static setting. It's always dynamic out there. So you need to understand that you can't just pull over to the side of the road and, and wave down somebody for help. You need to be self-sufficient at least for a little while so somebody can get there to help you if something happens. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverbird Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests are sharing inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. Welcome to the show and to an episode that is a little bit different. I do talk with someone who lives on their sailboat, but we focus mostly on his work, or his volunteer work more specifically. My guest is Simon Pierce from the Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue. These are the people you kind of hope you'll never need, but you'll be glad to know that there are emergency response crews on call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, ready to respond to a marine emergency should you ever need their help. Simon is one of the 900 people who volunteered their time helping others and saving lives on the water, and he's been doing it for over 20 years. The Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue operates in British Columbia, Canada, but the advice given in this episode definitely applies to wherever you are sailing. Simon and I talk about common boating mistakes, how to avoid getting into trouble in the first place, and also what to do if you actually need help. This episode is so important 
and as someone who is new to all of this, I found it incredibly helpful. Now here is my chat with Simon Pierce. I wanted to chat with you about your volunteer work with the Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue and, of course, about safety on the water. But I also wanted to chat uh, with you and about you because you are a liveaboard yourself. So how long have you lived on a boat and what kind of boats do you have? I live on a, well, please, 38 years now I've been living on board a sailboat. Uh, basically moved down from Calgary with my parents when I was five and they raised me on the boat. Uh, and it's kind of all I've ever really known, minus a couple of small stints in an apartment when I had to work away from the ocean. Uh, the rest of the time being on a boat. Uh, now on a Waterline 42, which is a locally built steel uh, sailboat built in Sydney, BC. But before that had three CNCs. So I've been trying to stay Canadian as much as I could for the boats. So, And CNCs are, they're wonderful boats. Yeah. All right. That is awesome. Of course, through Canadian, through and through. <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> and you are somewhere in the BC area now, right? Yes. Uh, we live in Vancouver, actually in uh it's called Spruce Harbor Marina, which is a floating co-op down there. So there's 55 co-op members and uh, then some wreck boats as well. I hear the last couple of summers have been particularly busy with the pandemic getting more and more people on the water, which is great, of course. But can you tell me a little bit about the uh, variety of the calls that you get? Like what kind of situations do people get themselves into on the water? You see a little bit of everything. Um, I started thinking about where I've been based. This is my fourth or fifth rescue station I've been with now. Uh, and all of them are different. You see everything from medical emergencies, uh, simple breakdown requiring a tow, taking on water, a ground, uh, you name it. They're every possible uh, emergency you can think of is happening out there. Now that I'm with the Richmond station, which is in Vancouver, we do see a lot of uh, broken down vessels, people out of gas, um, that sort of stuff. But we do get to see some of the commercial, more serious calls as well. Uh, and then the one thing I never expected, because Richmond is my first uh, city posting, if you want to call it that, with our CMSR, uh, we do see a lot more of the city emergencies. So we do see bridge jumpers and stuff like that. That's stuff that um, I certainly wasn't prepared for when I when I joined up this station. But it's all dependent on your geography. Absolutely. There's there's all sorts of different types of emergencies and really seem to be geography dependent. Yeah, yeah. That is very interesting because there's something like 30 different stations all along the coast of BC. So there's certainly a lot of variety in terms of the uh, nature and the communities that are out there. But I didn't realize that you also get involved with the uh, sort of city problems and issues that you mentioned. So you're you're also helping with the literal search and rescue. So it doesn't have to be a marine emergency. That's correct. Yeah. And when you get into Vancouver uh, and the larger urban centers, there are there's more interaction with the non-boating community for search and rescue. But if it's just the boating community we want to talk about, it's still the same around uh, Vancouver area. It's still towing, it's still taking on water, all that sort of stuff that uh, the normal search and rescue calls involve. Yeah, exactly. Well, all of this sounds mostly coastal, and I have always wondered how far do you go out? Like, what if sort of, if you want to call it your service area, how far off the coast do you go? I mean, of course, you probably don't go that far from the Richmond area. But if somebody is, say, somewhere on the Vancouver Island, uh, how far into the Pacific would they go go to? Um, RCM SAR uh, doesn't have many stations on the West Coast. I believe the only one they've got uh, right now uh, was in Euclid. I don't know what its status is right now. But most of the, the far off search and rescue stuff is done by the Coast Guard 
proper because they've got the, the vessels to do it. All of our stuff are basically inshore rescue boats. They're designed to stay relatively close to shore. Uh, you do see a couple of stations. Uh, I'm thinking in the Masset station up north, uh, north end of Haida Gwaii. Uh, where there is no other Coast Guard station close by. They are the only ones available for rescue. So they've seen rescues, I think the first one they've seen is up to about 90 miles, uh, not offshore, but 90 miles away from their base, uh, where they had to go out and rescue fishermen who their boat was sinking. But they are also the ones that see more of the commercial calls because there's not much pleasure traffic up there. It's mostly uh, commercial fishing vessels and stuff like that working those waters. Exactly. And that makes sense that the Coast Guard would jump in with their enhanced gear and equipment uh, that they can use for uh, with their different ships and boats and, and all that. One thing I have always wondered about, um, you said you've been a volunteer for over 20 years. So you must have seen some kind of same kind of things happen and go wrong <laughs> time and time again, uh, like you referenced. So Do you have um, an idea or a few examples of the mistakes that boaters make? Is it more about not being prepared or is it just purely accidental things that nobody saw coming? Um, I'm certainly seeing being near the urban center is a lot more of people not understanding the water. I think they're they're new to the water. They haven't received any training uh, on what the water can be like. They might think it's uh, like driving a car. Uh, even driving a car, most people probably don't think they did get trained on how to drive a car. Uh, so boating is just the same. You need to have a, there is a small amount of training you should have before you go out on the water to understand what the ocean is like. It's a completely different setting than being on shore. It's not, it can never be a static setting. It's always dynamic out there. So you need to understand that you can't just pull over to the side of the road and, and wave down somebody for help. You need to be self-sufficient at least for a little while till somebody can get there to help you if something happens. And do you see a lot of sort of um, running aground type issues? I know the BC waters are probably fairly well charted uh, in your area, assuming that people actually have the charts and know how to read them. But is that a common theme, uh, running aground, um, hitting rocks and that sort of thing? Very much so. And actually, especially around the uh, Vancouver area, because they've got a lot of sandbanks. Uh, and depending on with the new modern charting being mostly electronic, If you don't zoom in far enough, you don't see the sandbars. And so a lot of people do end up cutting the corners. Uh, we actually just witnessed one the other day where a powerboat, it was a bayliner, probably about a 32, 34-footer, uh, at speed, ended up cutting inside one of the shoals and ran right up on it, probably doing about 15 knots. And yeah, if you don't know what you're what you're meant to be looking for, you don't understand the markers, you're not looking at your chart properly, yeah, it's easy to run aground. And there's been quite a few, for sure, that we've helped off over the years. Well, another thing I am curious about is the medical emergencies. What about them? Are you still the people to call if there's an actual medical emergency? The RCM SAR is part of the, the larger search and rescue system out here. So people in distress will rarely ever call us directly. We have had a couple. I'm, I will say I won't say never because we have had a couple of people call directly just because they knew who we were and say, hey, I can shortcut and get in touch with them directly. But we are part of the larger search and rescue system. So when somebody calls for help, the Joint Rescue Coordination Center will assess the situation and figure out what's the best resource in the area for it. Uh, if it's us, then they'll task us. If it's uh, another resource, Coast Guard, police, they'll task them instead. To answer your question, though, yes, medical emergencies is something that we do see. In the Richmond station, I've, to be honest, never seen one yet. Um, I've seen it in a couple of the other stations, but uh, somebody I work with who is a, a coxswain, vessel commander for another station just up the coast, that's all she seems to see is medical calls, one after the other after the other. So it, again, it's station dependent, their location, but 
medical calls are certainly one of the things we are prepared for. And we do train our crews first aid and with the full AEDs and everything else on board the, the vessels as required. Yeah, and I imagine that comes in handy, even if the, the primary call is not a medical emergency, you know, but if somebody's run aground and they bump their head. So it's, it's good that the search and rescue team will have the skills to deal with that. Absolutely. Yeah, we're ready, hopefully for everything. Exactly. Well, you must do quite a bit of training. So what kind of training is it that you do? Training is an all-encompassing thing for us. Uh, you have to be trained to be able to do the job safely. Uh, and it is a job. It, everybody says, oh, it's just volunteer work. No, it's it's a job. When you're out there to be safe on the water, you need to be qualified and you need to be competent to do the job. Uh, so training is something that we take very seriously. We'll take people with no training and we'll train them right up to full vessel command status. Training normally for the crews, and it depends on all the stations. Every station runs a different crew setup. Um, but I'll use the Richmond station for an example. We have uh, a crew for every week night uh, and weekday that covers. And then that's Four crews every Friday is not really covered, and those crews get to do training on each one of the nights uh, that they're on for the week, and also they get the weekend. So crews will regularly train at least two to three times a month, uh, if not more. That's including on the water, plus classroom training on top of that to go through the theoretical portions of the training as required. So by the time you're done, you will see hundreds of hours of training. Uh, and when I look back at my logbook, actually, before uh, before the interview here, yeah, I've done hundreds of hours of training in the last few years. Uh, not as much as other people because I'm busier with work these days, but yeah, there's a lot of training involved. Yeah, it almost sounds like it's a bit of a lifestyle because you need to be able to put everything else aside and, and just do the training and, and go help others. That's a great way to put it, actually. Lifestyle is is it. It's You, you want to go out and help and you need to be ready to drop everything at a moment's notice to, to go out and normally not in great conditions. So. Yeah, of course, the accidents don't happen on a beautiful sunny day when it's uh, lovely to be in the water. It's going to be the crappiest rainy day with the storm rolling in for sure. Many times, yes. And those ones that happen on a beautiful day are kind of a nice relief because you get to go out and really enjoy a nice quiet day leading up to whatever it is. Well, we talked a little bit about calling you guys. So walk me through it. If I need help on the water, how do I actually get in touch with you? Perfect. uh, There's so many different ways to get in touch uh, with search and rescue. Uh, The best way that, in my opinion right now, is still the radio. If you have a VHF radio on board, call on channel 16. Uh, say that you're having a problem, what your position is, how many people on board the vessel, and that will go to one of the coast radio stations. And the coast radio station will then pass it to the Rescue Coordination Center, who will then task the appropriate resource. Uh, again, with RCMSAR, is part of the, the larger search and rescue system. Uh, so you're, you're never calling us directly. Unless you see our vessel right alongside you, you can call us over and say, hey, we need some help. Uh, but we still work within the larger search and rescue system, so we have to include the whole system with it. We don't just run off and do taskings on our own. Uh, so radio is probably the first and best choice because it lets Coast Guard know, but it also lets everybody else around know uh, because the radio, everybody can hear it. Cell phones, great second option. Cell phone coverage on the coast is, is never the best, so you should never count on the cell phone. Plus, the other problem with that is only one person gets the message, which is whoever's on the other end of the cell phone, as opposed to everyone around hearing. And you can also use your EPIRB or ELT which uh, electronic position indicating radio beacon, just flick the switch, help will be coming hopefully in in a little while. Uh, And you can also use your spot device and other stuff like that. You obviously come in when there's an emergency, but what if it's not exactly an emergency or at least not yet? Like the boat is not on fire, it's not sinking, uh, there is uh, no medical emergency, um, but something's off. Is that a situation when I would 
call you. Um, and I guess the broader question is, how serious does the situation need to be before we start bothering you? My rule of thumb is take a look at right away what's the situation you have. Is it is there any chance it can go into something more serious? And even take, like if you're broken down, a simple breakdown, the boat's not sinking, you're just drifting. Uh, well, where are you drifting? Are you drifting anywhere near commercial traffic that has to go out and around you? It's always good to give search and rescue a heads up that you've got a problem. Even if you think you can fix it yourself, if you can't, you're going to need help. Uh, so give them a heads up early. Even if it's a minor breakdown, you know, heads up. Coast Guard, hi, we've had a bit of a problem here. We don't need help right now, but uh, we'll let you know when things get going. That allows the search and rescue uh, system to be able to analyze and uh, task as required. Search and rescue is finite resources, so they have to be able to balance out where all their equipment's going. Uh, so the rescue coordination center will take a look at it and they'll start monitoring and going, okay, back of our heads, if this guy has a more serious problem, we have resources to send to them, or they'll start balancing and moving things around if they're already busy with other taskings. So the earlier the better is my, uh, is my thought on that personally. Okay, so it's totally fine to alert you that there is a situation that may or may not escalate and then ideally update you um, along the way as well. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's much better, much better that than, uh, than oh, uh, we're sinking now and then you're off the radio and that's it. And everybody's like, what just happened? Who's, who's where? What's going on? Is there a cost associated with your help and getting the crew to help me out? If you're talking chargeback, to uh, somebody if they're in trouble, there is no, uh, no chargeback at all. All search and rescue services so far in Canada are free. I've never heard of a, of a cost recovery uh, basis for it yet. In terms of cost for the vessels, there is a cost because these vessels are not cheap. Uh, they have to be operated. Uh, we get certain amount of uh, funding from the Joint Rescue Coordination Center uh, to cover our tasking costs, but training and a bunch of that is all fundraised. We are 800 members with, uh, I believe it's 30 stations around the coast of which almost all of it's uh, community fundraised. So we need donations and, and um, community support to keep these vessels operating and keep upgrading them as uh, new technologies coming online to help us actually serve better. Yeah, and I can imagine it is not a cheap fleet to operate or maintain. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What kind of boats do you have uh, in your fleet there, say, in your station in Richmond? Uh, our station right now operates two. So we operate one that's called a Type 1 lifeboat, which is uh, it's a full rollover, twin diesel jet drive uh, crew of up to six people on board. 
uh, all weather. So it's designed to go out in hurricane force winds, very large seas. It can roll right over, come right back up right again. Not that we ever want to see that if we can help it, but it's an all weather lifeboat. We also operate a, a rib that's a, called a Titan 249. Uh, Delta console, so there's a standard crew of three or five, twin outboards, top speed in the 40 knot range. And yeah, both those boats there are certainly not cheap to operate. Uh, outboard engines, if we have to replace one, which we just, we've had a couple of issues recently where we've struck a log, for example, and, and bent a shaft, you're looking at uh, you know a few thousand dollars just for a minor repair. Uh, and a full replacement on an outboard can run in the thirty to $40,000 range. Uh, and that's just the outboard, let alone the electronics, the hull, everything else on those. So it gets very, very expensive very quickly. I can imagine that. So there is no cost associated for the person receiving the help, but there is certainly a cost associated with all the equipment and gear and all that that gets used. And of course, yourself, you are a volunteer, so you donate your time to help others. And I'm actually curious, how does this look like for you? When there is a call that falls under uh, for, for your station, how quickly does the team get on the water? For crew that are on duty, the, the goal is to try to be on the water in 15 minutes which can be a bit of a challenge, especially in Vancouver and places where the traffic can certainly uh, change uh, and make your response time a little slower. But the idea is you can have a life, but your life has to revolve for that time that you're on duty, has to stay within 15 minutes of that base in the expectation that we're going to get a call. So we have to be ready to, to depart 15 minutes after the pager goes off. Right, yeah, that is not a lot of time. But I guess it helps uh, you that you already live on the water, so you are somewhat accessible there. The funny one for me, actually, because I live downtown Vancouver and I volunteer in Richmond, it, uh, it actually is a, it, I can't volunteer during the days with traffic. It doesn't work. So I'm uh, more of a nighttime coverage and I work at the airport, so I do volunteer during the daytime. And our, one of our tricks really with volunteers also is a lot of people have jobs that they can't leave in the day. So trying to find daytime crew coverage is really tough. Uh, my job sometimes takes me away uh, from Vancouver for the day. So even I can't cover for those periods. But it's that's always a challenge is the daytime coverage. Yeah, I can understand that. That makes total sense. But say somebody listening is living in the BC area and is actually interested in becoming a volunteer. How does this work? Um, I assume there is an application process and certain number of tests that they need to pass um, in order to be able to be considered for this? Or how does this uh, process look like? Um, if you want to think about it, the best thing to do is go onto the website, take a look on the website, uh, find where your local station is and contact the, the leadership of the station. Almost every station is, is looking for volunteers. We have volunteer turnover regularly uh, with people's different life circumstances as they're moving around. So if you want to volunteer, absolutely get in touch with your local station. Uh, you can get in touch with the head office as well. It's available. Contact info is on the website and they can send you to your local station. And once you're there, uh, you can see if it's something you want to do. There is testing, but it's um, it's nothing major. It's just more, more physical testing to make sure that you can physically uh, do the job without getting hurt. Uh, and otherwise, it's we will train you the rest of the way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, I will put the link in the description to the main website so people can go check that one out. Perfect. I don't know if you know the answer to this one, but is there a similar system on the east coast of Canada? From what I understand of the system, we used to be Coast Guard Auxiliary National, so we were the same group all the way across the country. Uh, Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue is, it was a split off more for the confusion people were having between us and regular Coast Guard. They would see our boats that looked almost the same and say, well, why do I need to donate money to you because you're the Coast Guard, you have federal funding, and we don't out here. 
it's not the same. Same thing on the East Coast. They do have uh, an auxiliary, a Coast Guard auxiliary. It's even up in Yellowknife. Uh, it was just up in Yellowknife, and there's a Coast Guard auxiliary unit based at a Yellowknife that does uh, Great Slave Lake. But the it's a little bit different. They use a different type of, uh, of owner-operator style of response vessels, so fishing vessels that are already on the water as opposed to the dedicated rescue vessels like the high-speed craft that we have. Yeah, exactly. Well, that makes sense. And there are 30 stations on the west coast of Canada, so that in itself is a huge coastline to cover for 30 stations. So Canada has a lot of, lot of uh, coastline to cover. One thing I'm curious uh, to hear about is maybe some advice to new and aspiring sailors and boaters. What kind of precautions um, should we take before we uh, get out of the water and, and in order to avoid getting into trouble uh, once we are on the water? Training is always my first one. Uh, if you can, try to get a small, at least a small amount of training, either from somebody you know who's uh, been an, uh, a boater for a while, who you trust and has you think has good experience, or professional training. Uh, at least get the minimum. Boating is, uh, I'm, I call it like a dance. Uh, it's Everybody has their, their steps to make uh, with it. Uh, and if somebody doesn't know the steps, it becomes a little bit, little bit of chaos on the dance floor. Uh, we really see, see that in Vancouver and False Creek as an example when the few boaters that you see out there who you know are brand new because they're going wrong way down the traffic lane. Uh, they're going against all the traffic or they're driving straight across and cutting everybody else off. That's probably the biggest thing. And the second one is don't turn your back on the ocean ever. It's... Uh, it will get you. So make sure you're always prepared, life jackets, uh, all the proper safety equipment on board. Yeah, for sure. And it is interesting that in Canada, you don't legally need a whole lot to operate a boat, which is a little bit scary. When I started to look into this, I assumed there would be something similar to like a driver's license test or something, but it's not. It's just the pleasure craft operator's card, which is largely online, and it covers a lot of the safety rules and such. But there was no practical component to it. So I was quite surprised to learn that because it almost sounds like it's a little bit of a wild west out there on the water. Yeah, the, the PCOC was certainly, uh, it was a good start for Transport Canada's, uh, had, had a, good, uh, a good response there to try to, to get the knowledge level up out there for sure. But you certainly see that when you're on the water is there, the practical portion is missing. A lot of people, they might have an idea about the rules from having done the test, but they need to actually be on the water and experience it to get some idea what it's actually like first. So if it's possible, if it's something you can do, I'd highly recommend go out with somebody uh, and, and get a little bit of practical knowledge and practical training. And certainly that's how I, when I joined RCM SAR, that's the way they, they trained me was get out there, get a real handle for it by feeling it and seeing it as opposed to just the theoretical uh, knowledge for it. So Yeah, for sure. And actually, going back to the volunteers, uh, is a, a boating background required uh, in order to be a volunteer? Not at all. Uh, we're happy for people with boating background because it certainly makes the training easier and they can also bring in a, a wonderful, um, varied experience to help us out. But we will take people with no boating experience and train them right up. No problem. I guess another thing that would be good to talk about is the sort of um, preparation and safety, which you referenced earlier. I know the Royal Canadian Marine Search and Rescue does, of course, as the main job is to respond to emergencies, but there is also another side to it, which is more about preventing said emergencies in the first place. And I think one of these activities that you also offer is safety checks on pleasure crafts and, and power ports. So can you tell me a little bit more what would be involved in a, in a safety check? 
Yes, we do. Uh, we do have a division that, that goes out and does uh, vessel safety checks. Uh, they used to be called pleasure craft courtesy checks, and the idea is they will go through your vessel with you and take a look at all your required equipment and make sure it all meets the standard. Uh, and so the standard assigned by Transport Canada for your vessel size and type, uh, and we'll go through the checklist and see if, if everything's there. We're not surveyors, so we're not looking at, for example, the engine condition or anything else like that, but we're just there to make sure that all the safety equipment is up to code uh, of what you meant to have and make sure that you, you understand uh, how to use it and everything else like that. And you do get a sticker at the end saying that you've passed your courtesy check, or you don't get one if you didn't. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just making sure that you have the bare necessities that everybody should have on board when you go out adventuring about on the water. Exactly. And we talked earlier a little bit about traffic lanes, and this is something I haven't had a whole lot of experience yet because the sailing that I have done is off the coast of Squamish in the House Sound. But I think more in the Vancouver area and, and Victoria too, there's a lot more commercial boating traffic. So are there frequently issues with commercial lanes and sailboats and powerboats running into trouble with the commercial um, boating community? I don't know if trouble is the right word for it, but certainly there's interactions. Again, it's, it's like a dance. If they don't know where they're meant to be, uh, they'll end up getting in the way. The commercial vessels, a lot of them are restricted to the traffic lanes. They have to stay in it unless it's an emergency. Uh, and a lot of people might not understand that or might not even know the traffic lanes exist on the chart there uh, because they haven't uh, they haven't been exposed to that uh, level of, uh, of vessel management, if you want to call it that. So you hear it. <laughs> That's the fun part living in Vancouver. You'll hear it on the radio. If you keep the radio on, you'll hear the large vessels calling and asking the small vessels to move out of the way and it gets to the point that they're really starting to get worried you'll hear the five blasts on the horn as they're trying to figure out what's going on but that is that is definitely one of the issues when you're dealing with uh heavy vessel traffic uh from a commercial standpoint and mixed in with a whole bunch of pleasure craft is there's going to be interactions and it would certainly be helpful if the the pleasure boats knew that they have to stay out of the way of the big ones it is a it is a requirement from the collision regulations so yeah exactly that makes sense obviously this is uh likely more of a summer month issue when there's more boats uh, out there but do you also operate year-round like do you get calls in the winter months absolutely yeah we're 365 days a year 366 on leap years uh, and we are ready to go 24 7 is the is what we try to cover uh, as much as we can with volunteers uh, and that is the idea is to be ready to go we do get calls in the winter those are some of the most interesting ones one of the ones I was on out here was ended up being about a nine-hour call in the winter for a sailboat that somebody had uh, salvaged off a beach and decided they wanted to take to Victoria. Uh, and this is just as we talked about with the traffic lanes. He was sailing wrong way against the traffic lanes. Uh, the winds were blowing 35-plus knots. Uh, it was an ugly day to be out there. The vessel, the large commercial vessels were having to divert around him. Uh, and then they got worried about him because he's going to darkness. Then they could pick him up on radar, but they couldn't see him. He had no lights. Uh, so they sent us out with the uh, Coast Guard base as well, the local Coast Guard base at uh, at uh, Sea Island at Vancouver, the airport there. So two, we had two boats out looking for him, and we finally found him about four and a half hours later. And he was still in the traffic lanes over by uh, Active Pass, so about 10 miles to the south of, uh, of Richmond. Uh, and we had to tow him in uh, that night because he, in the end we found out he had no experience. He's, he thought this boat would be a great thing to salvage off the beach, and he grabbed it went out and found out that it's there's a little more to it than just grabbing a boat and going so yeah and that was a november or december call so that sounded like it was somebody else who called for help so that can also happen you can if you see some someone else in distress you can make a call on their behalf absolutely yeah if you see a vessel on fire you see somebody go aground you can absolutely make the call 
on their behalf. Uh, I've done it quite a few times just on my own boat and sailing around calling in saying, hey, this something looks off here. Uh, and they'll task somebody out to take a look or they'll ask you to go over and chat with them. And we've ended up with a couple of, uh, of rescues of our own on our own personal boat just doing that. So. so it really is a lifestyle because it also ties into your time off. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of funny after 20 some odd years of doing this now, it's I, almost like I'm conditioned to watch for people in distress and what's going on there? What's going on? Is that normal? Is that so? Well, yeah, I can imagine that. It's, it's hard to ignore that. Like, no, no, I'm not on duty. I'm not looking that way today. Yeah. And that's part of being a boater too. It's the whole idea. One of the reasons I love being part of the marine community still is that it's not an expectation, but it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an understanding that you will help those around you if something goes on. It's it's that the idea is community. So that's what I really enjoy about it. That's the one thing I'm seeing now with a bit of a shift with all the new boaters out there is they don't understand that. There's there's that not in my backyard kind of mentality. It's so I didn't see that. I'm going to keep going here. So that's something that could use some good education. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. And I think with ships, um, I used to work more with like expedition ships and at least out on the ocean, if there is somebody in trouble, it's always the closest boat who has to go to help by whatever the regulations uh, is that says that. But I don't know if there is something like that for sailboats, uh, but it would certainly be a good principle to have. Yeah. And I think that's, again, back to the education. The Canada Shipping Act actually states that uh, all vessels, if they're aware of a distress, are to respond. Um, so I, I think, again, a lack of education, a lack of understanding and awareness of what the rules are uh, and your legal responsibilities as the master of a, a vessel of any size out there of what you're, you're meant to be doing. So, Yeah, and there is certainly a lot of material out there if you do want to dive in deeper and read more. Um, it used to be part of my, so my job, so I spent a lot of time on Transport Canada website reading through all sorts of manuals and materials and some of them apply for sailboats and some of them not so much so there's certainly a lot of material out there if you do want to go yeah. learn more but uh, <laughs> it may not be a requirement per se you mentioned you've been doing this uh, for 20 years and as we wrap up i would love to hear what is it that keeps you volunteering and donating your time uh, in order to help others on the water when I started, it was it was an interest just in the rescue side. Uh, next door neighbor was involved with it, and that's how it kind of drew me in. As I saw this really neat boat that he showed up in every once in a while, and went, "Oh, that looks fun!" And then I found out you get to go help people, which is even more fun. Uh, and it's now almost turned into I, I don't want to say addiction for me, but I love going out and helping people. Training is interesting and fun, but the most I enjoy is when I go out and actually help somebody who needs it, who who really they're in trouble, and there's they need that helping hand and it's that that really nice feeling at the end of it that you know we helped somebody we got somebody back safely to their families for those who are living aboard as well we, we saved their home we got their home back so they can continue to live on board it and it's uh that's what keeps me going now for sure is that that sense of of community and warmth of giving back to uh to the the boating community that so far has given me a, a great amount of joy i can imagine that and i bet a lot of stories as well to tell later on and look back to <laughs> But thank you, Simon, so much for volunteering your time to help others on the water and also for volunteering your time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I just so admire these men and women who are willing to face the inherent risks that come with saving lives on the water. And they're literally regular people like you and I. 
and awesome people like Simon who give up their free time for this. So if you're able to, please go check out their website, rcmsar.com, and consider supporting their work. Or if you're in BC, maybe you see about getting involved. Next week, I will get back to Liveaboard Stories, practical tips about the lifestyle and all that. I'll see you next Wednesday. Bye for now. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.